Bonus Tracks is the official blog of Spotlight On, available at spotlightonpodcast.com slash blog. There you'll find additional artist interviews, music commentary, and more. Have a look. Hello and welcome to Spotlight On, a production of 23 Media Ventures. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Today, the spotlight shines on trumpet virtuoso and international superstar, Ibrahim Malouf. Ibrahim is exactly the type of artist we love hosting. Sensitive, open, and unwilling to be limited by genre or expectations. His work mixes jazz, pop, classical, electronic, Middle Eastern, and African influences into a cosmopolitan sound all his own. Ibrahim and his family fled the civil war in Beirut when he was still a child, settling in France where his musical education and accomplishments took flight. In addition to winning prestigious international competitions and working with the likes of Wynton Marsalis, John Batiste, Josh Groban, and Sting, Ibrahim is currently enjoying his second Grammy nomination in the Best Global Music Performance category for his song Todos Colores from his 2022 full-length Capacity to Love. Ibrahim will be touring throughout France and North America in 2024. To stay on top of all he gets up to, you can check out his website through a link in our show notes. By way of starting, I wanted to share something with you that I came across this weekend. And when I read it, it reminded me of you. (laughs) I pulled it aside and thought maybe I could just read you a very short quote and see what you think about it. Okay. It was in an interview with McCoy Tyner from a few decades ago now. And he said, this is a quote, I am not a fatalist. I have not given up on what good music can do for people. Mm. That made me think of you in, in multiple regards, not least of which was you strike me as someone who is you're engaged with the world around you as an artist, as a citizen where you've chosen to perform some of the things you've lent your talents to. I wonder if you could talk about that for me a little bit, the relationship or the artist's role as a citizen in the world and yours in particular. Yeah, I can identify to what you just read. I know that there are different kinds of educations, different kinds of lives. I know it's not very cool to say what I'm going to say because it's always better to bring a cool vibe, and, you know, I like, <laughs> I like to be surrounded by people who have very nice childhoods and were raised in cool places in the world. And it, it always brings a very cool feeling to the conversation and all this. The thing is that, unfortunately, but, but that's okay for me. I'm not, I'm not victimizing or anything, but I didn't have a very pleasant childhood. I was born in an hospital that was being bombed while my mother was actually giving birth. I lived my childhood in the middle of war between France and Lebanon, always traveling when there were bombings. So definitely your destiny, your path is different. 
doesn't mean you're not happy, right? It doesn't mean you cannot be a joyful person and enjoy your time. I'm a, I'm a very joyful person. I'm, I'm a happy person. But your path is definitely different because you are fed from the first day of your life by the idea that things are not granted, that everything, even freedom, that we believe in the Western world, that it's something that we won and that it's that the rights, the civil rights, the human rights, that all this, it's okay now, it's okay, it's granted. No, it's not. So you are raised in a world where you are extremely conscious that anything can actually change, right? So that's, on my opinion, that's why I'm not just doing music for fun and not just doing music because I like it or not just doing music because I'm making a living and not because I just enjoy doing shows, but I'm doing music because I really, truly, deeply believe that music has a power Arts in general, but I would focus on music specifically, has a power that nothing else can bring. And the proof of what I'm saying is that every night when I'm doing a show, like now we're doing the arena tour in Europe and in France, I have thousands of people every night right in front of me who don't even care what is my religion, what are my political convictions and ideas who don't even care what are the religions or political opinions of all the people who are surrounding them. They are just enjoying their time all together on melodies, dancing, singing, and that's it. Full stop. The message of music, especially when it shows in the concerts, is the proof that music has a power that nothing else can have to unite us all together in one beautiful world and that's actually why i do music well okay <laughs> that's that's powerful that's powerful something that really struck me in reading about you and getting to know you in a way before getting to know you here trying to understand a bit about your journey is if i understand correctly it seems like especially earlier in your life there was a I hope I say this the right way, but attention in your relationship with music, like when you were doing the competitions and when you were initially studying with your father, it seems like music had a different tone in your life than it came to have. And I, I wonder, is that a misreading or is there something there? I feel like that theme was coming up that it took you time to find the joy that you're speaking of. Absolutely. I mean, if you want to um, be free... Again, you have a struggle first because no one can actually write a book if he doesn't know perfectly many other books, grammar, languages, the science of languages. You cannot pretend being a good writer. You cannot pretend being a good dancer if you haven't actually learned perfectly so many aspects of what dance is. Same for fine arts, same for anything. And for music is the same. So I think my father took the hard way to make it easier for me later. Mm. So instead of having a childhood and an education that was easy and everything I needed to have, I got it. 
and I want a PlayStation and I got it and I want to play with my friends and that's fine. And uh, instead of this, he raised me in a very strict way. And music was not only a question of having fun and enjoying my time. It was a question of life or death. <laughs> it was if I was in his foot, do you say? In his feet, in his foot. He would think, am I going to save my family and save my son's life by teaching him everything he knows, everything he needs to know to become one of the best musicians in the world? Or am I going to just spoil him and make him happy now and he might struggle later? So he took the first way. <laughs> so he made it difficult at first. But I woke up at the age of 10 with almost being a professional. At 10 years old, I used to play for weddings and concerts. I was almost making a living when I was a, a young child. And now I understand. But, but when you were young, you don't understand why your father is doing this. Why is he being so hard with you? Why is he so demanding? Why can't I just enjoy my time with my other friends? It was very difficult. But afterwards, now when you see the situation, unemployment, the situation everywhere in the world, and I thank him so much because I didn't have to worry at all. I did my competitions. I entered the Paris Conservatoire. I didn't even, I was so lucky. I, I used to play almost perfectly all the, concertos and sonatas and all the technique I was supposed to, to play at, at the age of 16, 17, I was already playing on the very, very high level of classical music. So I didn't have to practice it so much anymore. It was there. So I thank him now. But to be honest, it wasn't easy when you're uh, a teenager and a child, you want to have fun with your friends, right? Something you said at the start of what you just told me that I, I wanted to circle back to is this notion of by giving you this training, this intense, disciplined, rigid training, you connected it to a future freedom. Have you since discussed this explicitly or, or did you just come to understand that the idea was it, it's almost like a tradesman teaching his child. Mm. If you know how to build a house, you'll never be homeless. Or if you can lay bricks, you'll always have work. Was it that type of freedom, independence? Yeah, let, let, let me make it clear. I would never do this with my children. I'm not strong enough to do it with my children. I have three children. I want them to be happy, right? <laughs> so I, I, I wouldn't be able to do what my father did with me. But my father had a very difficult life. And when he discovered trumpets, he was in the Lebanese mountain and he was 24 years old. He was a farmer. He was a poor man working as a farmer. When he started to learn trumpet and when he decided to travel to France and Paris, which is actually completely crazy, yeah. you know, where, yeah, uh, he didn't speak any French. He didn't even go to school. He didn't have money. He didn't know anything about classical music. He just used to play music and sing music in the church in, in, in Lebanon, in the Lebanese mountain. He didn't know anything about what Western culture is. He didn't know anything, but he decided just like this. They, they ha he had this thing, his light something clicked in his mind and he decided to go to France and study. So once he studied in France, 
after six, seven years, he reached the highest level of classical music on trumpet, which is also completely crazy. Actually, I think one day I would definitely do a movie about it because that's one of the craziest stories and one would ever hear about. And anyways, in, in, the, in the meanwhile, he actually invented a trumpet, a quarter-tone trumpet. But his life was difficult. He didn't want me to go through this much difficulties. And when I was 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, he used to say something every time he used to say it to me. He used to say, if you don't have the diploma, the master degree of the National uh, National Conservatoire of Paris, which is the highest level in France, which is actually where he was, where he graduated. If you don't get the diploma of this conservatoire before the age that I discovered trumpet, that means that you failed your life. He used to say this. Uh, there was something that I had to prove. I had to be on the same level of my father, but earlier and finish my studies before the age when he discovered trumpet. And so they, they were, this was something that is related to survie, we say in, in French, survie, which means save your life, actually, you know, how to save your life. Yeah, the story or the movie of his life would be fascinating. To become elite at anything, but especially music, starting so late in life is almost unheard of. Not entirely unheard of, but very unheard of. Yeah, very unheard of, especially someone who really, I know I'm insisting, but still, it's crazy. He doesn't speak French. He didn't go to school. So he barely reads or writes Arabic. He knows nothing about classical music. The only thing he knows about trumpet is that his father used to play clarinets with people who used to play trumpet too. That's the only thing. And, and he does, doesn't have money or anything. And actually, if you want to, the whole, the whole story, there was a, a German musician who came to to Lebanon. I don't actually know why, but she was there and he fell in love. They actually fell in love, but she was supposed to marry a man in Germany. So they had a love story and then she left and he was feeling so frustrated and so humiliated that he decided to go to Europe and study trumpet because he was feeling so low. His self-confidence was very low because she left him to marry another man in Germany. She used to tell him, if you want to play trumpet, you have to go to Europe. Nobody knows trumpet in Lebanon. That was true, actually. And, and uh, she used to tell him, you should listen to Maurice André. You should listen to Maurice André. He's the greatest trumpet player in the world. My father was a farmer, 24 years old farmer in the Lebanese mountain who never seen anything else than the Lebanese mountain <laughs> you know, in his life. And suddenly, once she left him, he just decided to quit everybody, all his friends, all his family, everything he had. Just take this trumpet, go to Paris and study with Maurice André, which is crazy. Wow. <laughs> yeah, it's absolutely crazy. Well, what's crazier is that it happened. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. I know. that My father, it's actually what makes me always very grounded and that would definitely help me all my life to stay humble whatever the successes are, and I hope I will have successes, more and more successes, of course, like everybody. I wish my life continues like this, but I think that my life would never touch the craziness of my father's life. <laughs> and he would deserve all the credit for 
everything I'm achieving right now in my life. You know, he deserves it all. change gears a little yeah if i may i'm very curious about two parts of your music or two sides if you will to your music your life as a composer your work as a composer but also the role of improvisation the kind of basic question i have is is improvisation a form of composition like automatic writing or channeling or where are those two things the same and where are they different? I, I, I wouldn't just say something that would be shared by all composers. I, I think each one of us has a way to compose and work and all this. But on my, on my side, it's the exact same thing. It's just a question of time. All my compositions started by an improvisation, but it became a composition because I developed it. I produce it, I work on it, I do the orchestration, I write the strings part, I write the drums, or I produce it with the computer, or I put electronics, or I don't know what, or I add things. But it's always, at first, it always starts with an improvisation, always. I've never sat on a desk and decided, oh, let me compose something. That that doesn't work with me. Maybe some people do. But it doesn't work at all with me. I need it to be complete, completely spontaneous. I need it to be completely free from all the codes. You know, never too much inspired by something that I love because that's the, the biggest trap you can go into when you're a composer. It's like you, you so much love something that without even noticing, you copy it. So that's actually something I, I really want to avoid. So I really... I my best to take like a, a a blank page, nothing white, totally virgin page, and let my ideas come spontaneously and see if there's something good. Sometimes it's not good at all, but that's okay. I allow myself not to do good music sometimes. But sometimes there are some ideas that I feel might be interesting to develop. So I keep them, I sing them. Usually if I remember them, it's a good sign. From that point, I start to develop them and that becomes a composition. But for me, it's exactly the same process. Does it make sense? Yes, absolutely it does. Absolutely yeah. <laughs> it does. I, I don't know if you know about this because the, my book has not been translated, but I, I wrote a book about improvisation 
and it's called The Little Philosophy of Improvisation. It's actually mm. right on my bed. <laughs> and I, 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 I hope one day it will be translated in English. But the idea of this book was to explain how much improvisation is a philosophy more than a musical technique or a process in itself. It's a philosophy. It's allowing yourself to do mistakes, to not to be perfect. It's allowing yourself to accept all your defaults and imperfections, you know, and it's about improvisation when it's with other people. It's uh, about the connection, how to find our common points all together, even though we are so different. It's so much, it's so many beautiful values that our society doesn't really care about <laughs> so much. And it's the opposite of what school does. School usually teaches you the codes of the society. But the problem of school is that if you rely on it and only on school and you don't have the other side of education from your parents, for example, or from society or from sports, or, uh, if you don't have the other side, you can actually truly, sincerely believe that life is like school, which means if you're not good, you're a zero, you're an F or the process of how you think to actually find the solution is not so important and that the most important is only the solution. That's not true. Life is not like this because you can cheat. If the most important is only the result, you can cheat. You can actually watch on the sides and see the result and just write it. That's not life. Life is the process. Is How do you get to the result? And if the process is good, but the result is not good. You should have a good point. You should have a good grade. If, if, if you rely on school, it's a big problem because you don't adapt to the society correctly. And that's actually why I really believe that the other side of school is everything that improvisation actually teaches you. All the values that improvisation teaches you. I would love to read the book one day. I do hope it gets translated before I learn how to read French. <laughs> I don't know which one's going to take longer. <laughs> which is more important in the improvisational mindset then? Fearlessness or acceptance? Oh, both. both. Both of them. Both of them. Actually, it's very, um, how do you say in English, um, com complementary? Yeah. And self-consciousness, being aware of where you are, who you are, with who you're living, what kind of planet you're living in. <laughs> yeah. When people talk about the values of music, when people say that music makes people better, what is it about? What is it? Do we really think it's just music because it sounds good? It makes us better? I don't think. I think it, it contributes. The beautiful music contributes to make us better. But it's, all, it's not the most important thing. In my opinion, the most important thing is the values that it actually brings. Let me give you an example. Right now, in Europe, actually everywhere, to be honest, but in Europe, and I can feel it in France because I'm, I'm living in France, right? There is a huge amount of people, and I would say even more in the media world, that don't really see... Where is the problem of xenophobia? 
right? They don't see it. No, they don't see where the problem is. They are actually trying to bring the idea that xenophobia is not necessarily bad, which is crazy. It's absolutely mad. It, it's unbelievable, but it's actually happening. And I don't know how, right? So why am I telling you this? Because last year, each year, there is the amazing, astonishing Vienna Symphony Orchestra who plays for New Year's Eve, right? They do a wonderful concert. And since I'm a young child, we have a tradition in my family. The 1st of January at 10 or 11 a.m., we are actually watching live the Vienna Symphony playing all those vaults of, Bra of Strauss and all this, right? I love this orchestra. I love this music. I've been raised in it, right? Last year, I watched the show and it's stunning. It's a wonderful show. The orchestra is extremely beautiful. The sound is crazy. But as usual, there are only white people in the orchestra, old people and whites. I don't have anything against white old people, right? <laughs> it's not a problem. <laughs> but I really believe that symphony orchestras and orchestras, they give a picture to our youth of what classical music is. On my humble opinion, I really believe that if I, when I was young, could have watched such beautiful orchestras, but with people colored, different people, I might have identified, I could have identified and I could have seen myself playing in, the, in these orchestras, right? right? But I didn't. Maybe you're going to say it's for the goods because now I'm doing something else. But when I was young, I would have loved to do that. But I couldn't identify. I couldn't see anyone that looks like me that was doing this. So for me, it was something different. It was like, not for me. So I tweeted, because it was still Twitter, <laughs> that I loved the show and that it was unbelievable and that it was one of the most beautiful shows I've seen and blah, blah, blah. But I hope that in the future, there would be a bit more diversity in this orchestra. And believe me or not, after what I wrote on Twitter, I received an army of messages. Even the press, the medias, started writing terrible things, such as Ibrahim Malouf wants to replace white by Arabs and black people and stuff like this. And it went everywhere in the newspapers. People don't know anything about what classical music is. They don't know that... The symphony orchestra is based instruments who come, that come from Asia, from the Middle East, like the rabab, the violin comes from the Middle East, that the drums, the percussions, the marimba and the timpanis, they come from Africa, that the oboe and the flute comes from Asia. They forget how mixed all those cultures brought this wonderful symphony orchestra to what it is now. What is considered as European is actually a big mix of cultures from all over the world. And that's why it's so fascinating and beautiful. People forget this. Yeah, And it's the same people who are complaining about the death of the music because it's being held so tight. Yeah. You know, if it was, if it was freed, then it would stand a better chance of living. Absolutely. And since it became a music of museums in a way, they complain why people don't go to concerts. Why do we have to put so much money 
sponsors to make it work and why not? And I, every time I say, but, but because nobody's interested. Why nobody's interested? Because it actually didn't follow the path of life. It stopped at some point and people who love this music didn't want it to change anymore because they wanted to protect it. So when you want to protect your child and you say, you are going to be exactly like I am and your children are going to be exactly like me and you and we will not change because this is what we are. It's completely mad because <laughs> because you create a generation of people who don't evolve with the path of the world and they stop and they are stuck in one specific time. So I was talking about what music brings, what the values of music. People think that music makes people better just because of the melody. No, it actually, it's all about values. It's all about what the values of music are. And people sometimes tend to forget those values. We'll be back with more Spotlight On right after this break. If you're interested in contributing to Bonus Tracks, the official blog of this podcast, visit spotlightonpodcast.com and click Call for Submissions. That's where we post details on what we're currently looking for and how to be considered. And now, back to Spotlight On. It's interesting that you say it that way because as you were speaking, I was thinking about just my own journey as a listener going back for quite a long time, but but very much accented in the last few years is that I like to listen to dissonant music. I like to listen to music that sometimes people would, if your ear wasn't ready for it, or if you weren't exposed to it, you might say that's not music or it's just not as easily accessible. In those instances, it is the values of the music that I think is appealing. I mean, of course, I like it aesthetically. I've learned, I've developed the ability to appreciate it, but there's also the confrontation or the challenge or the puzzle in, behind it or the different type of emotion it's exposing. Like, it doesn't have to be just pretty melodies and nice orchestration that makes us all feel good. It's all those other elements that music can sort of confront you with that's exciting and enriching. Absolutely. And I totally agree with you. And I love dissonant music. I've been playing it for years. I used to play Stanley Friedman music. I used to play Robert Henderson music. I used to play Yanis Xenakis music. I used to play so much. And I love these things. But there are only few people educated to understand this. And that's okay. And that's okay. But if you... As someone who wants classical music to be popular, you cannot rely only on this. You have to open it in a different way so that people understand it. It's like free jazz. Mm -hmm. So contemporary dissonant music for me is all about freedom. You have the right to do it. And that's crazy, actually. You have the right to do it. You have, to, you have the right to write any kind of harmony. You, you can write nothing like John Cage, and that's okay. You have the right to do it. That's actually extremely interesting. So you're right. We're talking about values here. But that doesn't mean that it's not music. It is music. But there are not so many people who will understand it because it needs a very specific education, and that's okay. But what I mean is that you have free jazz, but near what was happening with the free jazz, you had also another kind of jazz, another kind of like different schools of jazz happening at the same time. And 
if you would have relied only on the free jazz and nothing else, there wouldn't be anything called jazz anymore. So I totally agree with you on, on the fact that what I'm saying, like, like the values and all this can also be present. It can also exist on those very specific music that are dissonant, but it doesn't have to be only there. It can be anywhere else. Even in a Shostakovich vals, it can be there. The values are here too. When people listen, for example, to, let's say, Mozart, but you have to educate people to understand why Mozart was a genius. Why? Because he changed so many things to the rules. He was a punk. <laughs> he was ruling things in a different way. He was changing what Haydn taught him. He was, he was trying something else. And if you study things, you understand that all those people who changed the curse of music and the path of music, all of them didn't actually respect the rules. They did something else. They changed it. In that context, what rules did Bach change? In my opinion, Bach was also a punk, by the way, <laughs> but a very clever one, knowing that he couldn't create if he wasn't working for the clerks and for the church. What, on my opinion, is absolutely incredible is that he tempered the keyboards so to create polyphony. So he totally changed the way people used to say the intervals. Before Bath, there was people playing quartertones, by the way, <laughs> you know. Uh, people used to play quartertones, on, even on keyboards, they used to have like quartertones and stuff. Bach used to play the oud, the, the, the lute, the Arabic, actually, <laughs> inherited from the south of Europe, from Spain, coming from the Arabs. Lots of people, by the way, forget that the music of the Renaissance actually used to be played with Arab instruments. That's right. The flute, the darbuka, <laughs> the oud, all those instruments. Even the, you know, what we, the, the harpish chord, which we call clavecin in France, like the keyboard with a... With right? the hammer, yeah, yeah. With hammer is actually what we call kanun in Arabic. It's actually the heritage of the kanun. You know, kanun is, is exactly the same than the harpish chord. The only difference is that they put it on the table and they put white and black things to, to play it, but it's exactly the same system. Bath decided to open an, a new way to see harmony and he created contrapoint and polyphony. Basically, after him, Olivier Messiaen and all those people, even in they developed it even more and more, of course. But he's the first one to actually temper the keyboard. And I know it's a bit of a parlor game, but is he the dividing point? Is, he, is there a before and after with him? Is Bach one of those transitional figures where there's what came before and what came after? Oh, yeah. No question yeah. about this. Definitely. Yeah. He totally changed the way... People see harmony and people see what the bass is. We call this bass continue. The, 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 no, I don't know how you say this in English. The bass continue, you know, it's, it's when uh, you just have to do... And they used to write chords, but the, but the person who's playing the harpish chord, they could play the chords the way they want. They didn't used to be at all this way. Nobody used to do this before this. Maybe I'm not educated enough to 
confirm 100% that he was the only one doing this at his time, but definitely he's the one who concentrated so much around him, all his students, all the school he built, everything he wrote, all the oratorios and all the the music for the for Sunday at the church. How do you call this? I don't remember the oh, name. Uh, the mass. Oh, you, you call the mass also? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. You know, everything he wrote and everything he asked his student to write is so big that they definitely we can consider him as the turning point for harmony and for tempered music. What's your love and, and, and affinity for, for film music? Like, what, how does that fit into your creative life? It seems to be something you gravitate towards repeatedly. My perception is that of the arts of the last 100, 125 years, film is certainly the most collaborative. And I wonder where film work fits in your artistic life. What need it fills for you? So many things. First of all, I think I started feeling that my music could be really related to images when I noticed that each one of my music corresponds to a story. Each melody, each song is linked to something that I have actually experienced or dreamed of or imagined or seen. Every time there is something that I see behind the music. So I don't always explain it, but there is always something. The other side of this is that every time I watch images, whether it's a movie or anything else, I really always have this musical ideas coming spontaneously. I relate them so much, these two. The image and the sound are always related for me. Also, every time I used to go in studios and recording some music, For me, even before doing albums, just like recording music for me, just to listen to it and all this, I used to love listening to my music when I was actually living something. Like when I'm in the train or in a plane or when I'm walking in the streets of a city, I've composed so much music in Paris or in New York, walking or in Beirut, or I've composed so much things, so many music just while having the ideas in my ears or listening to what I recorded and in the same time living something, experiencing something. I link all what music is to an actual life experience. So it was very difficult for me at first to dissociate 
those two things. <laughs> That's why actually my favorite moments in music is when I'm on stage because I give a life to this music. It's not only something you listen to in your earpod, but it's something that actually is living, is alive, you know? And at some point, watching movies, listening to amazing musics composed by amazing composers for amazing directors, you know, it makes me dream of doing something similar. So I grew up thinking that I was going to be a <laughs> composer for movies. I really always had this in mind. It's, it, was, it was even a secret because I wasn't even daring talking about it to anyone. It was like my little secret. <laughs> and it took me a long time before the first people asked me to actually try to do it. I had this ex beautiful experience on a film about the life of Yves Saint Laurent. It was actually a success. The movie was a big success in France and in the world. The music didn't get a, a, an award, but I was nominated for my first time in what we call the César in French, which is actually the equivalent of Oscars in the United States. So it was, wow, it was like, oh, oh my God. So people <laughs> think that I'm not so bad at it. So let me do this again. So since then I had um, composed like maybe approximately 20 or a bit more uh, movie soundtracks. And I love doing this and it's, it became part of my life. I've heard different ways that directors interface with the composers. Everything from just telling them the themes of the film or giving them a script or giving them a cut to compose to. Do you have a way you like to do it? Or is each one a its own challenge? Like, do you have a requirement as to how you'll do it? Or, or are you open for the ride with a director? I think I'm open for all kinds of techniques. I believe artistic collaboration has to be exactly the, the same way you actually encounter with people. If you think that every time you meet someone, you want that person to love jazz and you don't want them to speak too loud and you want them to drink beer like you and you don't like when people are not vegetarian and, da -da 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 -da, and like you fix conditions. So you're never going to have any friend, right? <laughs> but if you're, but if you're open, like there are some people who like to work this way. Some people who will tell you some interesting things, some people who are completely lost and they, every day they call you and they say, Oh, I know what I want. I want this, 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 this. But next day they say the contrary. And the third day they say something else and la la la. You have to adapt every time. And I actually adapt because it's a movie. It's usually their movie, you know, a director, it's, it's his little baby. So you have to respect this and you are not only working on something that is going to be your thing. It's going to be a collaborative thing. So you have to share, you have to know how to share. I have never worked with directors who are similar. They All of them have completely different ways to work. And every time I have, I adapt to them. The only thing that I actually appreciate is when directors accept that part of their movie can also be the music, mm. which means it's highly appreciated. It doesn't have to be. There are some people who would say, sometimes there are directors who told me, I want you to do a music that is invisible. <laughs> you know, invisible. Yeah, something that people don't actually hear, but they actually are listening to it without even noticing, you know, invisible. So you, you have to adapt, but, but it's always highly appreciated when a director tells you 
let's bring some of your music to my movie. Let's make the movie look a little bit like your music. Then you feel really that some, like what you are doing is way more intense because it's really actually going to feed the whole story. It's not only adding something. It's more than adding. It's bringing something to the characters. Interrupted by the banner on the plane saying, Have you gotten what's yours yet? Guess it's time to raise dopamine levels. Lazy feet ready to push on the pedal. Hands upon the wheel to steer. Burning rubber to discover any new frontier. Loudness in the fun. Good times splashed over everyone. The noise have a scent. Smells of rebellion is what the casting of the spells end. When nobody reads the fine print. Everybody wants bright lights, but what they might need is a reset, closed eyes get, focus shows up with the mute button. I noticed that you're touring in the U.S. next spring. I was looking at your tour dates and you're going to be near me. And it's listed as, I think, the electronic. Is it ensemble or experience? Can you tell me a little bit about that? What is that configuration? Look, I, I've always said that to me... Being a musician is like being a researcher in a lab. You have like those tubes and you put things in it and you see it and you're like, da, 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 is it going to work? I like this. It's what is interesting in music is that you don't always, you cannot pretend that you always know what's going to come out from your creation. You, you cannot. Otherwise, you would be scary, you know, if you always control everything, right? You don't know if it's going to be good or not good. You have to be honest with yourself. Sometimes you don't know. Every time I record an album, every time I'm working on a new music, and actually if you listen to my discography, you might actually notice that it's very rare that two albums actually sound alike. Like I can name them. Maybe my, my album called Wind and my album called Kaltum might sound a little bit sometimes the same on some aspects, because it's exactly the same quintet with who I recorded it, right? But all the other albums are totally a different experience. Since every time I'm trying something new, my last album, Capacity to Love, is a tribute to hip-hop and to the pop and hip-hop culture. I've never done this before. I wanted to try, you know, and I tried it, and I'm actually happy with it because it feels to me that, oh, it speaks to me, even though it's a bit outside of my comfort zone. So now I'm working on this crazy project <laughs> that has nothing to do with what I did before and that I call the Ibrahim Malouf electronic experience. <laughs> and I want to bring my audience, people who enjoy my music, to something different. Also bring them and take them with me in an experience, again, a little bit outside of my comfort zone and try something different and... In the same way, I don't hear the word experience as always being something completely avant-garde, 
and destructed and noisy or experimental. I don't see it this way. I believe that you can do great music, but in the same time, understandable by many people. I mean, experimental doesn't always have to mean weird and strange to hear. It can also mean just let's try something we've never done before. Let's just try it. So my compromise, and it has always been like this, is to find a way to do an experimentation around electronic music and electronic sounds, but try to make it sound cool to listen to that all ages can relate to, all generations to make it sound in a way that people can actually connect to it. I always compare my work as a researcher, I always compare it to someone who's trying to say complicated things. It doesn't mean if you want to say complicated things that you always have to use complicated words. I've always thought that the best teachers, for example, of the best scientists or the best philosopher in general, the best artists are the ones who make you feel that something that is very complex is actually very easy and easy to understand. It's like at school, right? When you had a teacher who made you understand something that is quite difficult, but he made it sound very easy to understand. That's actually the best teachers for me. So for me, it's exactly the same. I want to do an experimentation. I want to do some experimental music with electronics, mixing with all my culture, all my music, all my environment, everything I love to do. But I want it to sound easy to listen. And I'm not saying easy listening, like cheap. No, I want it to be easy to listen, but very complex in the same time. It's interesting. It's very much in the tradition of like the public intellectual who is not cheapening their intellectual pursuit or their conceptual framework. They're just effective communicators and they can bring ideas to large audiences and introduce people to new things. In this book, one of my goals was to be able to write something that anyone can understand from a child to a scientist or a doctor or a musician or someone who's not a musician, but being able to explain all the philosophy that I'm trying to explain without using strange, complicated, scientific words, just simple words. It's, it's not easy. It's not very easy. Uh, sometimes you don't have any word than the complicated one. <laughs> right. You know, so you have to <laughs> find out how to say it. And this is something that was taught to me by life. Because when I was young, I used to speak Arabic at home. We used to speak Arabic at home because my family intended to go back to Lebanon after the war, but they just didn't expect it to last 17 years. So they waited in France, we used to go back and forth speaking Arabic because we were supposed to go to an Arabic school in Lebanon. But so at some point, they couldn't go back to Lebanon because of the bombings. So they had to put us at, at, a, at a school in France. So we had to learn French at the age of four, five, six. So it was very difficult for me to understand what the teachers were saying or what my friends was, were saying. I had to understand quickly <laughs> with the eyes of people the look, what he was actually meaning. And when I had to explain 
myself things that are actually complicated, I had to use easy words because I didn't have the, the complicated ones. Then I learned, then I read, then I lived, then I complicated my vocabulary and I completed it by reading a lot. And now I know those complicated words. But I also know that if you use them, 80% of the people will not understand you. And I'm not actually looking for being intelligent in front of people or I'm not trying to show that I am on a certain level or, or anything like that. What, what is the most important for me is my connection with people around me. That's the most important thing to me. So when we were talking about this experimental complicated music, contemporary music with weird intervals and all this. I like it. I love it. I used to play this a lot, but I want to be in connection with the world I'm living in. I think that's a great place for us to, to end. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'll look forward to seeing you when you're in Seattle next year. I'd love to. I'll definitely come to the show, but thank you so much for making time. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you so much, Ibrahim Malouf. As always, thank you for listening to Spotlight On, a production of 23 Media Ventures. I'm your host and executive producer, Lawrence Purrier. We're produced and edited by Michael Donaldson with theme music by Qburn's Abstract Message. For past episodes, our bonus tracks blog, online store, mailing list, and to make a donation to support our production, visit us online at spotlightonpodcast.com. Happy and safe new year to you and yours. Thank you for all your support in 2023 and see you next year. Thanks for listening. Be safe and stay in touch. Mm